So, you know, we are in Parshat Bo, and the shir was sponsored by Ruth Koningsberg, in love and memory of her mother, Toba Leah Bat Yaakov Yosef, Toby Willig, on her sixth yard site. So I'm sure a lot of us remember Toby. Yeah, quite, quite a, quite a woman, and uh, it's really, uh, really honored to give the shir in her memory. May her neshama have an aliyah. So, we are in Parshat Bo. Let's start in the beginning. It's not the only bow, by the way. It's not the only bow, El Paro. If you, uh, if you would have noticed, there, there were at least one previous bow. I've hearted his heart and of his servants. In order for me to plant... We'll, we'll translate ototai, my, my signs or wonders. The problem with calling it signs or wonders is when we get to mofet soon. Laman shiti ototai ela bikirbo. In order for me to put these signs in his midst. Ulaman tisaper ba'oznei bincha uven bincha. It asher hitalalti b'mitzrayim ve'et ototai asher samti bam ve'adatam kini Hashem. And in order to be able to tell in the ears of your children, your children's children, that which I abused Egypt and the signs which I put within them, the signs which I put within them, and then you'll know that I'm God. So if you know the difference between the ototai in the first pasuk and the ototai in the second pasuk, the first one is directed towards paro and the second one is directed towards future generations. One is part of the story of leaving Egypt and the other is part of telling the story of leaving Egypt. So it's just interesting how the word or the idea even of the of the oath or the, for the let's right now call them the the signs, the wonders. If you want, I'm happy to call it the plagues. The only hesitation I have with calling it the plagues is noting which plagues is called an oat and which plague is not called an oat. And that once again looking for consistency is going to give you some homework to do in order to try to figure out so it, again, it, it continues to lay out what's going to take place. The plague which then comes up is going to be. Let's let's read it inside. If not, I will bring Arbe Bigvulecha. That's in source. That's in Pasuk Dalid. in Aretz v'lo yuchal Aretz. So then, this uh, this plague will come, and note Pasuk Zion v'yomru avdei paro elav. And at this point, the servants of Paro say to him, Ad Mokesh. Now, now th- this is fascinating. For how long are these people going to be for us? Really like a pain in our side. So note when we go, when we go backwards a little bit. What did it say? avadav. At this point, his avadim. So who's the avadav? This is not the Jews. This is Paro's... I don't want to say his inner circle because... For a person like Paro, there's two inner circles. One inner circle, I would say, would be close family and advisors. The other inner circle would be the people that clean up after him, the people that do all the work in the palace. And it's possible that he has to put on a much more of a brave face in front of his advisors and those kinds of people of, uh, of significance, but the others may actually see what's going on. But it is absolutely astounding that these people have the gumption to be able to stand up to Paro and to say to Paro, listen, it's over. It's over. I mean, if, if I didn't say this strong enough, I'll, I'll read it a, a little bit more over here, where they say, you know, how long will these people be a pain in our side? Shlach et anashim. They just gave him an order. That, that, that is a directive that they're giving Paro. Who gives Paro directives? Shlachet anashim Hashem Eloheihem. Interesting. They can't say in front of Paro, God, in an objective sense, their God. Haterem teda kiavda mitzrayim. Don't you know already that Egypt is lost? So, I mean, what a prognosis given by these individuals and what gives them the ability to speak to Paro. So you can argue that that's the first Pasuk. And uh, I, I, I put, again, God is manipulating the heart. We, we noted a couple years ago that all three plagues in Parshat Bo 
surround darkness. So over here, the sun god being eclipsed could be something which they also find completely devastating. And therefore, hearing that that there will now be darkness, and they understand the message, and therefore they're telling Paro, if if this is what happens, then it's over, because you just have completely lost your uh, your street cred. Okay, I'll say that in English. You've you've lost your credibility at this point, and how could you know? It's just better for you to cut your losses and let them go, rather than for you to be humiliated time and time again. But as I said, it's interesting. The Ototai go to Paro and to his servants, and he listens to them. He has it, but these are not the advisors. The, the, these are, again, that's the way it sounds to me. We heard about the Khartoumim. We, we've heard previously about advisors. This sounds completely different. Avdei paro ilav. Really, really, it sounds much different. But he listens. Vayushav, pasachet, vayushav et Moshev et Aaron al paro, vayom lechuvdu et Hashem Elohechem. Go and serve your your God. And at this point, it breaks down during the negotiations, and Paro, again, gets a little bit tougher. And he also says something else, you're never going to see my face again, which, if anything, is something that he'll come to regret, because there will be a time he's going to be running and looking for Moshe and Aaron. But as I said, th- this section, which introduces the, the, the final scene or scenes, I want to focus on the otot, the, the, the Ototai, which are used twice over there in those first two verses, one towards Paro and one towards the future. So let's keep that in mind. We go to the second chapter, which is source number two. And over here, I skipped Pasakalov. Over here, as we're moving toward the end, so this a little unfinished business, and God instructs to go and you're going to at some point now need to go and borrow and to take the Klikasef and Klizahav. And God says, and Moshe says, and then we have an editorial comment. And Moshe also is held in great esteem by who? So again, pay attention. So we're going back to those same Avdei Paro. They also, again, remarkably, or maybe not remarkably, if you, if you want to say this is all logical, so then they see his charisma, and they see his humility, and they see his ability, his capability, and, they, uh, and, and they're entranced by Moshe. If you want to say that this is also part of God's manipulation, and therefore the hardening of the heart working in this particular direction, I'm fine with that as well. I'm just making the observation that this is not necessarily what you would have expected because, again, we they've gone through a whole bunch of plagues at this point, and one could say, look at Moshe. He's the one who's bringing the Egyptian economy to its knees. He's the one who's calling a great deal of suffering. You know, how is he held in great esteem? But nonetheless, he is. And that seems to be going together with borrowing the money and the Kesef and Klezahav, and therefore the Jews are respected and Moshe is respected, and that's what helps create this kind of, uh, of a situation. It's then the death of the firstborn is told. Right, we skipped a little bit, but still in source two. Who made kol b'chor be'eretz and tzrayim? Mi b'chor paro hayosheva kisor ad b'chor hashivcha asher acher harichaim b'chol b'chor behema. So notice again, it includes paro, it includes the servants, and it includes the animals. And in distinction to all of the plagues that happened to this point, where maybe we would have suspected that maybe somebody along the diet along the way suffered enough and died. I don't believe that there's any evidence through the first number of plagues that anybody actually died. Right? It's only that now that we get to the death of the firstborn, it's not just a question of economy, which is falling apart, all the produce being destroyed. It's at this point something which is, which is much different, qualitatively different, and that's, and that's death. So this is something that we touched upon a little bit last week. When did things take place to both, and when did things take place only to the Egyptians? This one is actually going to be the most interesting, but we're told in the very beginning that there will be a distinction, and the distinction is going to be clear. By them it's going to be, again, as we saw, a total a total plague of death, and over here it won't be by the Jews, it won't be by their animals, and it won't be whatsoever. And not only that, their dogs are going to behave nicely. <laughs>
So uh, again, that, that that's interesting. But what I want to note is now the way that it ends up. First of all, in the end of Pasachet, and Moshe now leaves, which means that when Paro says, you're never going to see me again, he gets another message. And this is the message of the death of the, or the firstborn. And therefore, the Egyptians should be absolutely terrified at this point, because when someone has so far been nine for nine, then, uh, you know, you're on a good roll here. In Vegas, they would have kicked him out already. They would not. They would not let him. They would not give him a seat at the table at this point. He he would have been, he would have been kicked out. But what I want to note as well is pasuk tet and pasuk yud. Oh, by the way, he's not going to listen to you. Laman rabot So he says, in order for the wonders to be increased in the land of Egypt. And Moshe and Aaron did all of these moftim. So now, we do have a little bit of a problem. What exactly is an ot? And what exactly is a mofet? Because we saw the whole section was introduced with the idea of the otot, of these signs. And again, I'll call a mofet a wonder. And I'll, I'm going to save you a lot of time right now. I don't know the answer. I, uh, I I know, I have a suspicion what I need to do to get to the answer, but don't think I'm doing that for you. If you want for your homework to go through every single time in the Torah, it says Ot, and every single time it says Mofet, and then try to draw a distinction, then uh, you can let me know how that works out. I, I think you should also be looking in terms of the Navi Sheker. I think that there are other places, and I'm going to I'm going to get to something else. But you know, give me a little while. But just note for the moment that it's more acute in source number three. This is back in Perig, in Paragzayin. So this is way in the beginning of this whole process. By the way, that's eventually. Right, Moshe complains he can't really speak. Aaron's going to speak for you, and then Power's going to let you out. But of course, he doesn't say it this at this moment. But we just have a whole bunch of plagues. But he gives him a hint. But Yomer Akshay Leif Paro. Yeah, but by the way, I'm going to be hardening his heart, which means this is not going to go the way you think. And therefore, there will be an increase of both the Ot and of the Mofet. And I'll say it again. So now I'd love to know what exactly is the difference between the Ot and the Mofet. And that is something which is not immediately clear. And on this pasuk, I'm not I'm, again. I don't want to give the impression that I worked too hard, but on this pasuk, I looked at the various commentators to see if anyone's going to make a distinction between ot and mofet. And most actually ignored it completely. Ignored ot. Ignored mofet. Didn't bother dealing with it. The malbim is the exception. If you look in source number four. So he says, I have a thesis. I think that they have to be two different things. Now, that's why this is a... Meaning, I could have said that back in source number one and source number two, one place it's Ode and the other place it's Mofet, I can say, no, I love Dafka. Again, I can work on various distinctions, but I can say that they're really synonymous. But once I get to source number three, which was actually before all of these, and it says, and it says both of them, then I can't just say it's synonymous because then it becomes repetitive. And why is it repetitive? So now again, the the Malbim says, and it seems to me that there has to be a difference between Ot and Mofet. And of course there has to be a difference between Ot and Mofet. That's again exactly what I was looking for. And it's not that I'm surprised that the Malbim said this. He had to say this. And then he does what I told you some people like to do, and then he tries to create a big theory, right? This must be what it means all over, and he writes, Ha'ot ain't The ot does not have to be something which is supernatural. Or, you want me to say that in English? The ot could be something which is a natural process. <clears throat> but it's representative of something else. And a mofet is something which is itself is absolutely shocking. Which means it could be, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little afraid to read into this too much, it could be, just based on what we read so far, that a sign could be something which is a natural thing, but happens, you, you know, the... The timing. The timing. 
right? The most important thing of, of, the, of a miracle is timing, right? It's like a joke. You want to say the joke right before people laugh, otherwise it doesn't work at all. Those of you who don't understand, I'll explain to you later. No, see, the thing about the timing is, I remember a number of years ago, there was an article in the New York Times, which was based upon an article in a journal of archaeology that says that scientists theorize that the walls of Jericho fell down because of an earthquake. You know, as if somehow that, that goes against the biblical narrative. But if you walk around the city seven times and you blow the chauffeur and then an earthquake hits, that, my friends, is a miracle. Not because earth... And by the way, they're on a fault. I don't want to tell you all this. Things are bad enough. There, there, aren't, there aren't a fault. There are earthquakes there every now and again. And to say that there's an earthquake is, is yeah, that's, that's a natural thing. But that doesn't mean it's not a sign because when you're there and you pray, the walls will come down and the earthquake hits and it comes down, that makes it into a miracle, which means the timing is the issue over there. A mofet would be something which is completely against the rules of nature. And then he goes in, you know, again, trying to make this distinction. And he says, Lumashal, the Eitzel Paro Karumo Fate. So he goes, go back and take a look, and you'll see that the terminology is different. By the Jews, that was called an oath, and by and by Paro it was called Mark Yisrael. Heminu Bashem, Tevadrim. Now the truth is, he just now it's not so easy what he said. You do realize that. Because he said, Oh, it's only when it's supernatural to Mofate. Oh, for the Jews, supernatural is natural because we're so used to miracles. So now you realize that even though he's attempting to go and again make a broad theory, it's not as easy as he makes it sound like. No, that is a sign that Moshe is the Shliach. And therefore, he says, any of the makot that they were warned about, therefore, otot, because they are a sign of something else, because they become a sign of God's ability, of God's involvement, of the hashkacha. Now, by the way, it doesn't necessarily say this by any of them. I'm going to say it again, that he is creating this big theory. Things go in threes, which we know about anyway, but I'm just going to stop right now because, as I told you, I, I, I love big theories, but I don't like big theories when you have to force them a little bit. And uh, when he's going to tell, tell me that, oh yeah, when you turn a staff into a reptile, then that is either an oath or a mofate, depending on who's watching it. It's not as glot as we would like it to be, but we do appreciate the Malbim greatly because he asked the right question. Whether you like the answer or not is of no interest to me, and if you don't like the answer, then go and put together a better one. But, but I'm telling you, th- th- this now is an issue, and I'm just going to m- kind of make believe I know that I'm wrong. I'm going to kind of make believe that there's no difference between the Ota and the Mofate, because that's not really the, that's really not my main interest over here. But what we do notice that God is saying that I, I have some things up my sleeve, up my anthropological sleeve in, to do still. And uh, it's going to be important both for Paro and important for you. And this is still part of the story. And therefore, let's, uh, let's move ahead. There may be another element about when it is an oath or when there is a mofate, which we'll see if we can touch a little bit, but I'm going to say it again. I'm, I'm not going as detailed as the Malbim perhaps would like. We get to chapter 12, and we're in the middle of it, Perak Yudbet, source number 5. We're told to take the blood and to put it on the doorposts. Now that itself is really interesting. The reason why it's interesting is for multiple reasons. One reason is, I mean, come on, does God really need a sign to know which homes are, are, are the Jews? Or maybe, or maybe, we are quite undeserving, and we need to do something in order to deserve being saved, which is interesting. In the context of bringing the Korban Pesach, it's also quite interesting, because then the doorpost, in a sense, becomes the Mizbeach, just go back and review all of Sefer Vayikra, and you'll realize that the sprinkling of the blood when bringing a korban is actually something which is significant. And therefore, there's no, I mean, what mizbeach do they have here? What altar do they have over here? 
how are they doing the Passover service again with the carbon in a proper way? So it's really interesting of the door being put. Uh, sorry, the blood being put on the door frame, then in a certain sense that door becomes the Mizbeach, as it were. So I'm saying that that's that's interesting. What to do with that, again, I leave that up to you to try to take, you could take there any any place you want to take it, but that itself is interesting. I'm sure somebody had to say it. Of course somebody has to say it. But the reason we're here is for a different reason. And what's that? The Oat. We're following our signs, right? Follow the signs. So, but, so aside from that, this is going to allow us to be saved, aside from perhaps it being like a Mizbeach, no, this will be la'ot alabatim asher atem sham, atadam, I'll see the blood, upasachti aleichem, and then literally the word Pesach, I will pass over those homes. Okay, this is what's going to facilitate the Jews being saved when the plague comes and hits. And you're not going to be hurt when the plague comes and I strike Egypt. And this will be for you, for a memory, and you're going to celebrate this forever. So again, this dual aspect of it's necessary for the events in the present tense, but it's also necessary for the future to be able to go and look back at what is taking place is also over here very, very clearly. And that's part of what I want you to note. And then it goes into details of, about the future, not about right now. Shivat yamim matzotochelu. That's about Passover in the future. Or if you're going to really get me on a technicality, technicality that's about Chag matzot in the future. The Torah is clear of the distinction. The first day you get rid of all of the Sa'or, the Chametz or Chametzing agent, which, by the way, if you start looking through the Mishnah, was that a halacha in Egypt itself? Apparently it wasn't. Apparently in, in, Egypt is still before Matan Torah, as you know, we should note. And in Egypt, they may very well not have had any obligation. They were not told beforehand, get rid of all your bread. They didn't have, the women didn't have to start cleaning from Tov B'Shvat even if there were two others, right? It didn't, it did it, I mean, it doesn't say that in any place. All that they were told is that when they're going to leave so quickly, not have time for the bread to rise, and, uh, or they left so quickly, not time for the bread to, bread to rise. So who said anything but not eating chametz at that point? Although they were told to eat matzah that night. And should we skip over here a little bit? And there's certainly what to contemplate. Was that just now said in the past tense? When exactly was this said? And uh, even though this is part of a uh, of an instruction from God, perhaps before they left. So exactly how was Moshe told to write this? So this is certainly interesting. Again, you know, it is very, it's talking about living in Israel already. It is talking about the future. It's talking about celebrating Israel, sorry, celebrating Passover as we move forward. Then it comes back, and then you see there's a pay, and I should have put like a new paragraph right there, and then it goes back to talk once again about Pesach as it will be performed in Egypt that year. Right? Pesach Kavbet. Ulekachtem agudat ezov, utavaltem bedam, asher bisaf, vigatem el hamashkof, velshteya mezuzot, so it goes very specifically how it is you put blood on the doorposts. And then a commandment, which we should not ignore nor forget, which also will help you understand the Jews did not leave, 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 sorry, the Jews did not leave Egypt that night. They did not leave until the morning, which is something which you have to read a whole bunch of verses to understand this, unless you pay attention to this one. Va'atem lo ishmi petach beito ad boker. And they're given very strict instructions. Nobody leave the house until the morning comes. Va'avar Hashem l'ngofet mitraim v'ra'at adam al mashkof al pasach al ha'petach. And then God will pass over so again, that was described in the beginning. This is the sign, right? This is the zikaron, and so on. And this and the dam is the oat, 
and we're still not completely clear about what's going on, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain momentarily. And I'll say it again. Certain elements are going to be done because we don't do the thing with the blood on the doorposts subsequently. And it goes in further. When you go to the land. So this is a whole, again, going back to, going back to the future, going to the future generation. So you realize this whole section is being written in a very interesting manner. But then again, from the beginning, there's certain elements which are necessary to leave Egypt. And there's certain elements which are less necessary to tell over the story of how we, leave to e- how we left Egypt. And we've seen in the past already how the word oat could be used for both of those things and I'll, I will note that over here oat is only used regarding the blood which is put in order to leave Egypt and the word oat was not used regarding the, the future practice which of course the simple understanding would be because in subsequent generations you don't put blood on the doorpost so there is no reason or there is nothing calling for that oat but I will stress that's the simple explanation and since when do we ever choose Simple. If we'll read a little bit more, Pasek Kavtet, this is again a new paragraph. And God at midnight comes and strikes all the firstborn, all of them completely, everyone dies. And Paro gets up, Paro gets up at night, one of the things that was said, there was this great scream, there is not one household without dead in it. So again, as opposed to the first nine plagues, now death has gone throughout all of Egypt. That had not happened before which means as bad as any of the plagues may have been, and none of them are pleasant, and, a lot, and they're very uncomfortable, and maybe their lives had been made exceedingly comfortable because of the slaves that they had who did all the hard work for them, so now they've gotten a lesson in discomfort along the way, and now you can say that they're paying, in a sense, midah keneged midah for all of what they've done. Now, we just now went to a different place. Because discomfort economy is not the same thing as death. And now there is total destruction. Egypt, as it said, every single household. But continue, because then something happens which could have been unexpected, or shouldn't have been unexpected. And he calls calling out for Moshe and Aaron, and that's what every Israeli kid learns in Gan. Right, Paro pajama halayla, Paro running around in the middle of the night looking for uh, Moshe and Aaron. But again, they're told they can't leave the homes. And he also said, "I'm going to see you again." So apparently, Moshe and Aaron have no interest in going out. But it's but it's Paro and his henchmen who are running around. Go as as you would ask. And bless me as well. Of course, surrounded by death, now suddenly power. Yeah, and, and yeah, and now and now suddenly he wants blessings as well. And the Egyptians wanted are doing all they can to get them out as soon as possible. We're all going to die. Meaning now that death has come in, this is this is again completely different. And I'll stress again. But the Jews didn't leave, because they were told they can't leave until the morning. But Yisah Amit Bitzeko, Terem Yichmatz, Misharotam, Tzurot Pismot Al Shechmam. And they take the dough and they put it on their shoulders. V'nei Zuz Osukit Varmoshen, V'yishalu Mimitzrayim, Klekesa V'klezav Usmalot. And they went and they borrowed things. Borrowed things. V'hashem natan chen ha'am b'nei Mitzrayim, V'yash ilum, V'yitzluot Mitzrayim. Now this is remarkable. Why is it remarkable? Because all of them are suffering from death, and, and still they find great favor in the Jews, right? By the way, the last time that the that people found great favor in the Jews, it's and they're suffering like this, and nonetheless they say, "Oh, please!" And the, and there is this appreciation, and you'll go back. There's this appreciation for Moshe, and it's, it's the avadim of Paro, meaning they're watching Egypt completely fall apart, and none and and, and suffering themselves dramatically. And nonetheless, we find this incredible statement over here that they want to let, they want to get them out, but they also there's this aspect of respect, which is I think completely unpredictable. Ex- right? It's yeah, as, as 
No, no, but it's not what it says. It's not what it says. What it's the Hashem Natan etchein ha'am beinei Mitzrayim. Okay, you could say anything else that you want, but it actually indicates that there's this sense of affection at that point. And I'm saying this is what meaning. Just to think for a second, there's a dual aspect which is taking place. On the one hand, God is coming into history. God is killing the firstborn, and the firstborn in Egypt were quite important. And at the same time, I'm saying that itself is an oat, right? You want a second level of the oat? Well, every house is being struck except for the house of the Jews, or, or at least of the Jews that are putting the blood on their doorposts. And now you want another level of oat? The other level of oat is, and the Egyptians, right? You have a distinction between Jews and Egyptians. Egyptians being struck, and the Egyptians fawning over the Jews that are there with this real sense and this real feel of, uh, of connection and love and appreciation. I'm saying all this, all this is, it's all that I could tell you about this is that apparently this is also at least partially a uh, prototype for the eventual redemption and somehow non-Jews are going to wake up one, wake up one day loving Jews and they're going to be in great pain because of this. <laughs> They, they, again, how, how in the world are they going to deal with this? That they suddenly feel that they are that they are suffering the punishment for what they've done, and at the same time feeling this love and affection for Jews. So when I say that God is micromanaging over here, it is in, it is in such an interesting way. But there are layers to this, which I think that sometimes we don't appreciate because you look. Some of us can just say, "Oh, you know, God promised from the beginning, from Bereshit, from the Brit Ben Abitarim." Right? You're going to leave Ruchush Gadol. And he said it along the way, you know, back by the Sneh. He said it there. And it's been, it's come up over here. Yeah. It was at the Sneh, slightly after, in Peritalid. You're going to leave Ruchush Gadol. And over here, he comes back and, 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 and he said it again. He told them that, and we see this great appreciation for Moshe at the same time that they're coming to their knees. And now we see this appreciation, this Chen. For, for the people, so I'll say it again, the, the levels over here are fascinating. They're also contradictory. You, you, you know what? When I was looking at it, one of the things that came to my mind, the, the, the inner contradiction, and right now is a metaphor, I was thinking about, in source number nine, when it talked about Barad. Where you have this Ice and fire at the same time. I mean, I mean, yes, the Egyptians are being struck, and by the way, by Barad, the Jews are not being struck. So here you have this distinction, and then you have this cold and this warmth at the same time, and that doesn't work together. So in retrospect, you know, you could say, oh, that's just a miracle. That's God is showing off how God can control all of nature. But I also see this as some foreshadowing, which what takes place over here is that you have something devastating taking place, and then you have this completely unexpected warmth which comes out, and how in the world can understand this? I said that came to my mind, at least in a symbolic sense. So the idea of the signs go back and I don't want to go through all of them. I'm just pointing out from the very beginning in Perik Gimel, God said, and this was this is the one which is unexpected. and he talks about Har Sinai. When you come out, you'll serve God on this mountain. So I'm saying that that's the first oat, or the first time that God uses the word oat within this whole narrative. In Perik Dala, there's a couple of more that that come up, and again, the, these are the ones that if I would have asked you to uh, assign, it also could mean a letter. Over here. You have the various things which Moshe is doing, his hand becoming leprous. It says that take the staff and turn it into the Nachash, which as those two are happening, there's no, there's no description. But then at the end of source number 10, God says, So now in retrospect, that was called an Ot. They'll, they'll believe the second one. Then God adds, doesn't believe those two, right? And then he talks about, and then he talks about turning the boat. So what's interesting is that the word oat was used a number of times over here in this 
narrative, if you go back now in 11, which is Perik Zion, so this is part of what got, got the Malbim going. Oh, look there, in terms of Paro, in terms of the Jews, it was called Ot, and now in terms of Paro, it's called the Mofet. So tell Aaron to take the Mate and throw it down, it'll become a Tanin. And, and by the way, and then again, you have a, a, a miracle within a miracle or a layered miracle. Why? Because at the, at the end of Pasuk Yibet, or we'll read the whole thing, it turns into, uh, okay, in Tanim, you, you can say, you can, let's say reptile, and Aaron's staff swallowed there, and the, in Shmot Rabbah it says, says, why is it? Why is it a miracle? It says. It says. Now, now go back. If one serpent or reptile swallows another, they'll say, "Oh, that's natural." It's going to return back to his staff, which means the staff swallowed their either staff or their reptiles. And if you read the pasuk, Aaron, which means the staff opened up its mouth and swallowed it. So it's nes bitoch nes. So again, that's interesting, just in terms of what we've seen so far of having various layers involved in uh, in, in in these miracles which are taking place. Okay, so now we're going to move to where I wanted to go to, whether this is expected or not. As we continue from Perak Yudbet, and Perak Yudbet is the chapter that talked about taking the blood, putting the doorpost, that's talked about doing the Passover service, that talked about the future as well, you're going to celebrate this, you go to the land of Israel, you're going to celebrate this. And then we move from there to Perak Yud Gimel, part of Perak Yud Gimel is in Bo. We read as follows. In source 13, So here we have a really interesting halachic fallout from the Jewish animals not dying, as opposed to the animals, the Egyptians that did die, and we're told that they need to become sanctified. God says, I spared them, and therefore they belong to me. And by the way, this is moving forward in the future. And now we get to this other Remember, so therefore, apparently, we're now facing, I'll call it a religious or an educational, because I think there's a combination challenge, and that is, how do we make sure that we remember this? Now, on the one hand, we're already told you're going to celebrate Pesach year after year. So it adds another element, which is not just during a couple of days in the spring. With an outstretched hand, God is saying, that's again an interesting term, so again, the verse before spoke about the, the animals and the firstborn, and now it goes back to, remember, I took you out from slavery, and don't eat chametz. And again, very connected to the springtime. And now, again, when you enter into the land, you're going to celebrate Pesach in the spring. So, springtime, Celebration. Shivat yamim tochamatzot, and once again telling us you're going to eat matzah, you're not going to eat chametz, and also it adds in that other element which we've noted from the beginning today. Pasuk ched vihigadata levincha beyomahu, and you're going to tell your children, and that's where the word the hagada comes from. The hagada is based upon this word. You're going to tell your children Now you notice that's come again and again now. With a strong hand, and you're going to keep this like forever. Again, new chapter. And it goes back to the firstborn again, which now, again, that's part of the story. It's part of the narrative. It's part of the celebration. Not necessarily a spring Pesach celebration, but part of the celebration as well, or commemoration. And when it comes to the firstborn of people, then make sure that you that you pay the Kohen and you liberate them. And then it goes back again. 
It comes back in again, used, that's the third time, by the way, right here in a couple verses, that it uses Chozek Yad. Which again, all of us now should be thinking, okay, so God took us out, and God took out the strong hand, and God used the displays, and God did the Otod, and the Muftim, and so on. But this repetition of Chozek Yad is in of itself really, really interesting. So let's read a little bit more. And now finally we got back to the oat. Now this oat is not an oat which is done as part of leaving Egypt. This is actually the first time now we're told about an oat which is future-oriented. Because God, and, and now another time for the strong hand. So now, if I didn't know any better, and I'm reading this whole description about what we'll, what we'll call tefillin, for lack of a, of a, of a better term right now, now the, the, one of the reasons that at least some would want to hesitate in terms of St. Helen, and we shouldn't hesitate, Right. If, if again, if you want to, just we'll, we'll come back in a second. I'm, I'm, I'm skipping Lamed Aleph for the moment. Sorry, I'm skipping 40, 14 for the moment. Source fifteen in Dvarim Vishinantam Levanecha. You should recognize this. Vidibaritabam b'shiftach b'vistecha v'lechach b'derech v'shachmecha ukshartem laot al yadecha. So now, why, why is Tefillin again called an oat? And here it doesn't say. In Perak Yid Aleph, you should recognize as well, which again, Tefillin is described, but again, more, I should read the rest of that. Also in the previous, what's the Oat here? Because we're talking about Tefillin. Mm-hmm. That, that it is a sign to remember leaving Egypt. Which mean, and I'll just go one step further because it should be obvious by now that somehow we're somehow we're commemorating that God is using His outstretched hand, and we're putting tefillin on our hands, even though obviously we are not God and God's hand is not our hand. But somehow, the same way, actually, if you just follow the narrative, the same way that we are going to have a certain attitude and behavior and mitzvah regarding the animals that we are going to redeem the firstborn animal. And we're doing the firstborn who's born way after, you know, whatever happened in Egypt that night. The same way is that we are somehow going to commemorate with at least the tefillin shoyah, the tefillin put on the hand, it is somehow commemorating the outstretched hand. And I'll say it again, it constantly uses the word ot over here when describing the, the, the tefillin. Ayadcha luzikaron beinenecha. And it should become, again, notice that, because in the later two places, Tefillin was described as, in the later two places, was described as the Totafot Beninecha. And the Totafot is a word which is not that easy to understand. There's a whole discussion in the Gemara, whether that's a Hebrew word or whether it's a, it is a foreign word which is being borrowed. But just go back for a moment when it was actually described in the end of source 13, So again, here it is the totafot. So again, what does the word totafot mean? And that's that's not so simple. So let's again look at Rashi. Where is he? He's in Pasuk Tet. Yeah, look, go, go, go back, sorry. I think we... We may have skipped this before. Pasachet was vigadet l'vincha biyomahu leim b'avur zeh Hashem li b'tzeit mitzrayim v'yalacha laot ayadcha ulazikaron bein einecha lamanti atorat Hashem b'ficha ki biyadcha zakahu tzicha Hashem mitzrayim. To translate, it means that, and, and, and so again, notice, tefillin is introduced there. Then we have the discussion of redeeming the firstborn, and then tefillin is, again, is mentioned again. But the way that tefillin is, rep- is described the first time is which means that part of leaving Egypt is it's necessary to recognize that God used an outstretched hand, but also there needs to be a memory which is created. 
So it sounds, when we read over here, that part of the putting on of the tefillin is the recognizing of God's hand. It's about leaving Egypt. The recognizing of God's hand and the memory to create this memory, which apparently is not meant to be done only on Pesach. I mean, quite the opposite. When it comes to holidays, when it comes to Shabbat, we, 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 we don't necessarily put on tefillin. And there is, by the way, a whole discussion in the Gemara regarding if you're allowed to put tefillin on night, you're allowed to put tefillin on Shabbat. Part of the scenario that it brings up is what if there's tefillin that are lost in Rishuta Rabbim? Are you allowed to wear, like, you can wear clothing? Can I put the tefillin on and wear them to take them, to carry them in? And it becomes this whole discussion of whether one is permitted or not permitted and so on. But th- this itself is interesting because, as I said from the beginning, that this idea of the oat was, on the one hand, was how we're leaving Egypt, but on the other hand, was also to create a memory. And then becomes the question, how do you commemorate? How do you celebrate? So I, I don't know how many of us really paid attention to what it says over here in Perikid Gimel. I mean, let, 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 let's be honest. Perikid Bet is so much more dramatic than Perikid Gimel. And generally, when we think about Tefillin, I think we're more likely to think about, as it's mentioned in the Shema and V'yom Shemoa. But if you read it over here in context, you read about when it's introduced, then it becomes something which is really remarkable. I, I, I do want to note, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up, I do want to note that Rashi, when he talks about the tefillin over here, he, he says, so, v'yadachalaot, you'd see it's right, v'yadachalaot, that this is going to be a sign, I mean, the tefillin is a sign to remember or to somehow process the leaving of Egypt. And therefore you tie them onto your... And, and these are two of the parashiot of Tefillin right here. Rashbam, see the Rashbam is troubled. Why is he troubled? Because in the Tefillin go four parashiot. And two of them are the Shman V'yam Shemoa, which are in Tvar, and we don't have them yet. So if they were really commanded right now to do it... By the way, the solution would be in Muktam Muchar and wait till I explain to you completely what it is. I'll, I'll let you know still what we put inside. So the Rashbam, look at 18. Totally symbolic. It's as if it's written on your hand. Why? Because there's nothing, we don't have the parashiot yet. They don't exist yet. So again, he sees it much more symbolically. Rabbeinu Meyuchus talks about it again in terms of memory. The Ibn Ezra in 20, he says, I have two interpretations. I have two possibilities. And he quotes a verse over here that you should tie it. He quotes something from Mishle. It sounds like he's going much closer to the Rashbam. It should be like a sign. And then he goes, again, just meaning much more symbolic. And then he writes, yeah, but it can also be, Right. Not just something which is a symbol and therefore imagining it. He says that makes a little more sense. Because that's a batala perisharishon. So my first imagination about what I think it means, just a memory, meaning totally symbolic. Okay, I'll, I'll just pause and explain this, and I, then I'll try to wrap up. What he just now did is, uh, when the Ibn Ezra came to France, and he traveled a lot, and uh, when he came to France, he was very influenced by the Rashbam, and he just now entertained the Rashbam's interpretation, and he said, yeah, but I can't really say that, because Chazal don't say that. So there's this whole discussion, you know, to what extent does the Ibn Ezra have fidelity to Chazal, and to what extent will he just say things? Over here, he rejected the Rashbam, who says something, because he believes it to be imaginary, but I understand where the Rashbam is coming from. We don't have those other two parshiot yet, and that's just assuming that, you know, God is saying this to Moshe at that moment, Again, we understand a principle of Ein Muktamumuchar, and God could have said this to him in Sefer Devarim when, you, when you're going to be writing down the section about leaving Egypt. Put the tefillin as well. Why? Because that's the primary objective over here. What did we really try to see today? What we really tried to see is to what extent, then, from the very beginning, that there was an oat for, that, for them, and there's an oat for us. The oat for them, for the Egyptians, was part of leaving, and a lot of it was nuance that happened on various levels, and to see 
into and to see to what extent God was really controlling things. And as I said, there was a lot of texture to this, and that was interesting. What exactly is the distinction between an ot and a mofet? As I said, you know, you want that for homework, go ahead. Go look at every place that it's mentioned and try to figure it out. But when we talk about those two, those two different directions of ot, a sign, and then a sign for us, a sign for Paro, and a sign for us, a sign for his people, and a sign for us, something that we can tell in the future. So then it becomes really interesting because I think it's almost inescapable. And I, and I think that's what Rashi is saying. I think it's almost inescapable to see the tefillin in terms of the memory. We need to remember this. And we need to know that God took us out with an outstretched hand. And then the tefillin just simply becomes symbolic of that. But it's not just symbolic. Again, the Rashbam and the Ibn Ezra played with this, maybe it's just symbolic. No. It's that this particular mitzvah, again, you can, all the women can now ask me, so why, why so that case, why, why don't the women do it? From the, from the very beginning of the week, I was, I was, I, I knew where I was going with this, and I was, you know, trying to process this. But it, it, it's interesting that the tefillin over here is presented in context as an oath, and now you realize that all the other times it's mentioned, it's also as an oath. And I think that that's just a reverberation of the leaving Egypt, and therefore, and what is it symbolizing? Remember, God used an outstretched hand to take you out, and now you, you hopefully you noticed in Perakiyot Gimel that terminology, that phraseology was used multiple times to describe how we move further and create the memory and there are other laws in terms of the firstborn and so on that are part of this memory. So now you realize that the oat, part of an oat, is moving forward. It's not a miracle in the sense. No, but it's a sign. It's something which is symbolic, but also is a mitzvah. Again, don't choose one or the other, like the Rashbam or the Ibn Ezra tried. No, it's not one or the other. It is a mitzvah which is performed, but the mitzvah is not just mechanical. The mitzvah should be one of remembering what happened in Egypt. Now, the place that I didn't go, and there's much more here, is wherever other places, the word, that's what I skipped. Wherever uh, we have a Shabbat is also called an oat. And for that reason, it's explained why one does, doesn't wear tefillin on Shabbat, because now you have a different oath. You have a different sign. You have a different sign that you were slaves and now that you're taken out. Which means when I have this, uh, I'll call it a, a larger or more immersive oath, and that is Shabbat, so now I don't need this specific one, especially when it, you know, when I could talk about this as strength and this is working and, and so on, that... that I could push that aside because the Shabbat with has the Zachor and Shamor, which, by the way, now when you think about it, may be very, very close to the two aspects of Tefillin as well. And therefore, right, the Zachor and Shamor, one is action and one is more thought. And now I see that Shabbat has those two elements, so that becomes much more interesting that in a day that I have Zachor and Shamor, I don't really need the Tefillin, which represents the hand and which represents the memory. But essentially, that's going to help me remember that God took us out and therefore commanded us about the Shabbat. Yes, I know that there's two aspects of the Shabbat, creation as well. Creation is why God rested on the seventh day. It's why the seventh day was chosen. But when we were slaves and set free, that's when God commands us to keep the Shabbat, which means that becomes an oath, that becomes a sign as well to this idea of being taken out of Egypt. So in a sense, we don't need... And, and by the way, just notice now all the times that we say by all the holidays, Zechel Yitzhak Mitzrayim, meaning... meaning Every day we say... Yeah, Mitzrayim, which means that there are elements to this, but the oath of the Shabbat as I said, is a bit more immersive and therefore it's not necessary to have the tefillin as a more, quote-unquote, limited aspect or of a sign that God indeed took us out.